One of the most perplexing moments that comes when you're trying to preach and your podium falls apart is what just happened. But one of the most perplexing moments that happens when you are a brand new parent is the very first time, thank you, Brentley, the very first time that you put your baby down on the ground, maybe on the play mat or something, and you turn your back in your, your um, minimal minutes that you have as a parent when you're thinking about trying to wash a bottle or put back a toy or maybe run a load of laundry, when you turn your back for a moment on your child and then you turn back and they're not where you put them down and they learn to crawl. From that point on, for the next 25 years ago, you can't turn your back. That's not true. So, for someone who is a follower of Christ, one of the most perplexing moments in the life of faith is the very first time that you leave God somewhere and you turn your back for a moment and then you turn back and he isn't where you left him. What happens when God learns to crawl? By which I mean... What happens if God doesn't respond on our terms, according to our script, in a way that makes sense to us? When we first begin to learn about God, everything that we learn about him makes him seem so predictable and so reasonable and so tidy. God loves us. He always does what is good. God answers our prayers. God protects us. He provides for us. God defends his people. God rules over the earth. God is always working for good. This is who God is. This is how God works. This is what God does. This is what motivates the heart of God. These are God's promises. We have this sense that we can lay God down somewhere and turn our back and turn back and he'll be right where we left him. Still doing his reasonable, predictable, tidy thing. So what happens when he isn't and when he doesn't? What happens when God doesn't act in a way that makes sense to us? What happens when he asks something hard or costly of us? What happens when we pray about something and we we don't get the answer we want or we don't get a clear answer at all? What happens when God leads us away from the things that we would like rather than towards them? What happens when we're made to wait and to wait What happens if God acts in ways that just don't seem reasonable to us? What happens if we turn toward God and this is our experience? Has that ever been your experience? Maybe it is right now. We've been working our way through this fascinating story of God's encounter with his people at Mount Sinai. And there are two perplexing chapters in that unfolding story that I want to remind you of this morning. So we've been in this series on intimacy with God, in which we have seen how God has taken the initiative to bring his people near, to give them an invitation for them to draw near to him, how he has taken the initiative to give them glimpses of his nature and his character and his loving heart, how he's taken the initiative to make provision 
for an unholy people to approach a holy God, how he's taken the initiative to, to reveal himself to his people and then to faithfully record that for them uh, in his word. All of that we've seen God, God taking the initiative in his relationship. And it would be so easy for us to think that, that all of that means that we could, would never be likely to experience something that would be unreasonable or out of the ordinary with God. And then this happens. The first one, Exodus chapter 24, the same chapter that we've been looking at the last couple of Sundays. Uh, let me just bring you into the end of that chapter and show you something that happens with Moses. The Lord says to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here. What an incredibly beautiful invitation. We picture this moment of beautiful intimacy with God. Come up here and be with me. Stay here. I'll give you the tablets of stones with the laws and commandments that I've written for the people's instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his aide, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back. Aaron, her are with you. If anyone is involved in a dispute, uh, they can go to them. And then when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. We're waiting for this amazing moment between God and Moses. And then this, for six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And then on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. Think about what that would have been like. You're Moses and a couple of hours go by and you think, did I, did I hear right? And then the sun sets. And then you spend a cold night up on the mountain. You think, surely at dawn, it'll be a great moment to have this great moment with God. Dawn comes and goes, and that day, and that night, and the next day, and the next night. Did I miss something? Is God playing with me? After six days, God calls to Moses and invites him into the cloud, where he spends the next 40 days. What's the longest you have ever waited for someone? Does it seem reasonable that God would ask us to wait in that sort of a way upon him? The second moment is found in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. High up on Mount Sinai now, Moses is up there in the presence of God. And Moses says, God, show me your glory. And the Lord responds to me, answers this request. He says, I will, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft on the rock, and then I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. And then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and he proclaimed his name. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. So God passes before Moses and he reveals the essence of his heart, but Moses only gets to see and to hear what God lets him see and hear and even that, he doesn't see or hear until after God passes by, 
So God is both hiding himself from Moses and Moses from himself and revealing himself to Moses at the same time. Do you ever get the sense that there is as much about God that you are not able to see as there is that you are? And that that's of God's choosing? When theologians speak about the attributes of God alongside God's omniscience and his power and his love and other attributes, they talk about the inscrutability of God. Inscrutable means difficult to understand or interpret, hard to predict. It means that parts of God are beyond our scrutiny. There are aspects of God that remain outside of our view and outside of God's explaining to us and therefore outside of our understanding. There are things that God does that we cannot expect or predict. A.W. Tozer wrote a book about the attributes of God. It's a beautiful devotional book called The Knowledge of the Holy. I would highly recommend it to you. And in his chapter that's titled God Incomprehensible, he writes this. Left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. We want to get him where we can use him, or at least know where he is when we need him. We want a God that we can in some measure control. We need the feeling of security that comes from knowing what God is like. So we really collide in this conversation with a very significant paradox about God, particularly for us as evangelical Christians who, who believe so deeply that the Bible is a faithful and true revelation of God to his people. So on the one hand, we have God's word and we are so confident that everything in it is reliable and it is true. The scriptures are inspired by God and they reveal truth about the nature and the character of God, about which we don't have the slightest doubt. We can know God, and we can know him with confidence. One of many verses in the scripture that capture that, Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And yet, on the other hand, that very word in which we place so much confidence teaches us that his ways are not our ways. Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not, neither are, my, are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, as we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the problem of the inscrutability of God doesn't go away. Yes, we have Jesus, God in the flesh, who makes God known to us in ways that Moses never could have imagined. John chapter 1, verse 18 no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and in the closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. But just because we have Jesus doesn't mean that all mystery related to God disappears. God's inscrutability remains. 
As Paul writes at the end of the book of Romans, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? So as evangelicals, we can make an understandable but a wrong leap. We can veer so easily into thinking that because we've been given his revelation, because we can know God sufficiently, that means that we can somehow fully understand him and predict his ways fully. Because we have the Bible and Jesus giving us all we need to know about God, we can be tempted to believe we know, there, we know all there is to know about God. God is personal and knowable, and he has given us his word and his son in order that we might enter into relationship with him and know him better. But there is much about his, his being an infinite and transcendent God that is and always will be mysterious and inscrutable. Not the essence of his heart and his character. Those we can know with confidence because of the scriptures. But the ways God works in a given circumstance are often utterly beyond our scrutiny. I think the Psalms are a really helpful indicator for us of what we can expect in our relationship with God. If you have read the scriptures at all, you already know this. Half of the Psalms are about God's inscrutability. Where are you? What are you doing? Have you forgotten me? As but one example from among so many possible examples, the opening lines of Psalm 83. Oh God, do not be silent. Don't be deaf. Don't be quiet, O oh Lord. There are, are you aware of this? There are as many Psalms lamenting a sense of God's absence and his seeming disengagement from our lives as there are, there are psalms of praise celebrating a sense of God's presence and his involvement in our lives. God himself prepares us to expect this on the basis of what he gives us in his word, that we can know sufficiently something of his nature and his character and something of his heart because he has made those things known to us. And yet rarely will God explain all of his thinking in any given moment or any given action. Someone gets cancer. Will God heal her and bring himself glory in that way? Or will God allow her to suffer and die from that cancer and bring himself glory in another way? Either could be a perfect manifestation of the heart of God who is both all-loving and all-powerful. Let me just take this one step further as we think about the Psalms. If you really stop and think about this, all of the Psalms are about the inscrutability of God, including the Psalms that celebrate God's presence and his involvement in our lives. How in the world do we understand or account for God's goodness, his grace, his generosity, his miraculous work, his faithfulness towards us as unfaithful people? There is absolutely no, nothing that is automatic or or given about his shepherding us, his sheltering us, his providing for us, his being present to us, his being good to us when we fail him or forget him altogether. His presence is as unexpected as his absence. His goodness is as inexplicable 
as the times when he seems to withhold his power to do good. I mean, just think of the beginning of Psalm 103, those opening lines that talk about the, the, the stunning wonder of what God has done, is doing, will do on our behalf. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with love and compassion, satisfies your desire with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. How in the world do you explain that? That gives voice to God's inscrutable ways every bit as much as the Psalms that say, where are you? What are you doing? There was a spiritual classic uh, written in, the, in about 1350. Uh, we don't know who the author of it was. It was written in England. That's known as the cloud of unknowing. And this is an observation that that writer makes. And this fits with a, a conversation that started all the way back in the first couple hundred years of the life of the church and has been sustained uh, talking about this idea of the cloud of unknowing. Lift up your heart to God. Focus on him alone. Want him, not anything that he's made, not anything that he's done. Think on nothing but him. But the author says, when we approach God in that way, not insisting that we understand everything God does, not insisting that we will always feel his presence, he says we will all inevitably experience a darkness like a cloud of unknowing. You must know that this darkness and this cloud will always be between you and your God at some level, whatever you do. They will always keep you from seeing him clearly by the light of your own intellect and will block you from feeling him fully in the sweetness of love in your emotions. So be sure you make yourself at home in the dark. It's the closest you can get to God here on earth by waiting in the darkness and in this cloud. Now let me bring you to something that I think lies for many of us at the very heart of the challenge of God's inscrutability. And, and that is this observation. I think one of the most difficult of all relational challenges between any two people is the fact that when you have two people in a relationship, you also have two wills, right? I mean, think about the relationship between a parent and a two-year-old or a parent and a 15-year-old or a parent and a 34-year-old or a 34-year-old and their parent, between a coach and a player, between two friends, between two spouses, between any two people, the problem, the challenge, the struggle inevitably comes down to the fact that you have two people, you have two wills. I think the, the greatest temptation of all for us in any relationship is to try to bring one will in line with the other will. So that between the two people, there's really only one will at work. Ours. Challenge is, you want this and I want that. You think things should go that way, I think they should go this way. The temptation is to eliminate one of those two wills so that our wills are in line with each other. And we can be tempted to do the exact same thing with God. To try to get God to think and to act the way that we think he should. 
I mean, you think about it. This is at the heart of the entire pagan belief system that the Israelites left when they left Egypt and encountered when they came into Canaan. The gods of Egypt, like Isis and Osiris and Ra, the gods of Canaan, like Baal and Asherah. Here's how the system works. You have a need. So you make an offering. That offering is calculated to please the God. And by pleasing the God, you obligate that God to meet your need and to give you what you want. You are bringing the God's will in line with yours, and as a result, getting the child you've been praying for or the fertile field that you want or the the elimination of enemies that you would appreciate or whatever else it is. So I impose my will on the gods and get the outcome that I want. God is not the great I will. He is the great I am. I am that I am. And we relate to God on his terms and not on ours. I, I thought back about an experience that I had when I was about seven or eight years old. Um, some of you know my story that, um, that though I grew up going to church, I very quickly uh, kind of fell away from the faith and there are a number of different reasons for that. But this moment I'm about to describe was a very significant part of that. Um, I remember vividly still lying in my bed. I'd already been tucked in. The room was dark. There was kind of seeing the light of the headlights of the cars coming up to the intersection opposite the house. And I remember sitting up in my bed and saying, God, if you're real, you ought to be able to just prove it to me. So right now, just come down into my room, in the flesh. Just come here and show yourself to me. And he didn't. And I mark that as a decisive moment on my path towards atheism. Now, the problem was not that I asked God to make himself known. The problem was me insisting that this is how God would do that on my terms. So the result of that experience is that I lost confidence in God when in fact, what I should have lost confidence in was my own potential, my own ability to control the God of the universe and and to require that he act on my terms. And what I saw only years later is that God had actually already answered my prayer 2,000 years before. We want for, them to be, for there to be only one will between God and us. Turns out that's what God wants too. Tennyson, our wills are ours to make them yours. Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, this is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, then he answers us. God is not the soft-serve ice cream machine at Dairy Queen where you flip the handle and out comes what you want. God is not at our beck and call. His ways are not our ways. And intimacy with God has to make allowance for this. Approaching God on his terms and not on ours. Surrender, relinquishment, abandonment, 
These are qualities that are absolutely necessary for us to experience genuine intimacy with God. He relates with us at his initiative, yes, by his grace, yes, but on his terms and not on our terms. If you remember anything from this morning, I think this might be what God would have us remember as we spend time in these passages, that God will always act in keeping with his own goodness, but he will not always act in keeping with our expectations. Many of you know the story of Mother Teresa, this absolutely stunning public figure representing the Lord Jesus Christ in an amazing life of service. In her own private devotional life, she went through almost all of her years with a profound sense of absence of God in her life. In one letter she wrote to a pastor, she wrote this, Jesus has a very special love for you, but as for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see, listen and do not hear. The tongue moves in prayer, but does not speak. I want you to pray for me that I let him have a free hand. I think that is a prayer we should be praying for ourselves and for one another, that we would let God have a free hand. That we we would not insist that God act on our terms. I remember a time when I was in Colorado Springs, uh, and this is a time in my ministry when, uh, to be honest, I was thinking a lot about me and my reputation and being known and all of that sort of nonsense. And uh, at one time, I received three different invitations, all to be involved in something I was really excited about, but they all took place at the exact same time. Going up and speaking at Culver, where I went to high school, Uh, going and leading a retreat at a large and prominent church and going to speak at a national conference. And I remember being before God and going, why would you put all three of these in front of me knowing that I'd have to say no to two of them? And when I finally got quiet long enough to really listen to what he said, what I realized he was saying is, I want you to say no to all three of them. And he said, you be concerned with my reputation, and I'll be concerned with yours. All of that was to teach me, as it says in the cloud of unknowing, he is not asking for your help. He is asking for you. It is so disconcerting not to be able to control God until we stop and realize how disconcerting it would be if we could. Could you imagine God taking his cues from us? God desires to bring us to a place where we realize how incredibly comforting it is to know that we can't control him. Our exasperation with God's inscrutability begins to fade away when we give God back his right to be God. And we let him exercise his own will and his own freedom to act as he sees fit. And we seek to bring our lives and our hearts and our will in line with his. God will always act in keeping with his own goodness, but he will not always act in keeping with our own expectations. So how did Moses respond? When God calls him up into the cloud and then he requires that he wait for seven days before he says or does anything, before there's any encounter with God, Moses does what God asks. He waits. 
And then he enters into the cloud. And what does Moses do when God passes before him and he hides as much of himself as he reveals? Moses, it says, bows down at once before God and he worships him. And you'll remember that that posture is not just a posture that says, I exalt you. It is a posture that says, I surrender to you. I yield the entirety of my life to you. I, I surrender my life. You are in charge. Be God in my life. I was thinking of so many different examples and there's so many more that I thought of than these that I can mention. These were just some that came immediately to mind of some within our church family and in other places, examples of meeting God on his terms and not on ours. I believe that the invitation in this passage is for us to resign from being God's approval board. To remove ourselves from the place of scrutinizing everything that God does and deciding for ourselves whether or not it makes sense to us and is therefore acceptable to us. To shift from trusting in our understanding of what God is up to as he's acting in certain situations to just trusting in God's goodness no matter what, even when we don't understand. I think of a conversation that I had with a young woman from this uh, congregation who came back from a short-term mission trip who was struggling so profoundly to come to grips with a God who would allow so much pain and suffering in this world when he had the power to rectify that with a snap of a finger. And her coming to a place finally of relinquishing a simpler child-sized version of a tidy and predictable God and exchanging that for one that included more room for mystery, but still could trust him and still could cling to him. I think of speaking with a man who was dying of cancer and even knowing that he was in the final days of his life, knowing that there was not a cure for what he faced, him saying, I trust God. I love God. He is so good. He has always been so good in my life. I just want to live every day of my life for him and to do his will. I think of an email that I received from a single woman who expressed to God how hard it was for her to be single, wondering why, not only why God didn't bring someone into her life to marry, but, but even someone to date. And she had the sense that God's answer to her was, I am a jealous God and you are mine, which she said brought a complete end to the discussion and moved her to flat out worship as she had a profound sense of how God valued her and that his plan was for her. And that felt as though that was sealed. And from that point forward, she kept her eyes on him, trusting him, obeying him, serving him and finding deep contentment in his will becoming her own. And I think of speaking with a brother in Christ, a man who has been an athlete all of his life, who is dealing with debilitating illness that is gradually robbing him of the use of his legs. And him saying to me, I am just starting to see that everything that God allows to come to me is in the service of his perfect love for me and is perfectly designed to fulfill his refining work in me. God will always act in keeping with his own goodness, but he will not always act in keeping with our expectations. 
in the light of that, I think it would be appropriate for us to join Moses in his response. Would you pray with me? Lord, we bow our lives, we bow our hearts, maybe even our bodies before you this morning. You are God and we are not. Our desire is not that you would conform your will to ours, but that we would conform our wills to yours. That we would give you latitude to be God in our lives and to be God in this world. And that we would joyfully abandon ourselves to you, yield ourselves to you, surrender our lives to you. We pray in the name of Jesus, our glorious King.